Good afternoon. How did the Holy Spirit disappeared in Lutheranism is my title. Two years ago, when I last stood before you, I lectured on the liberating sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I drew several conclusions at the end, and I wish to pick up today on two of those. They read as follows. First, justification by faith. That is not the sovereign work and gift of the same holying spirit who drove Jesus into battle with the unclean spirits is an ideology of substitution in the service of the religion business rather than the apocalyptic reality which incorporates us worldlings into the reign of God so that with the apostles, believers can exclaim, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. That exclamation expresses the holy freedom for which Christ has set us free. Two, justification by faith is propter Christum, on account of Christ. That means Christ's unique personal sacrifice for us precedes and grounds Christ's sacrifice in us. Reconciliation or atonement is not actual then in the mere event of its announcement, but rather it becomes actual in its Holy Spirit reception by repentant faith, which actually surrenders, that is, sacrifices sin to Christ, the Lamb of God who bears it away, and receives Christ's particular righteousness in sin's place as divine gift. This union by faith with Christ happens as the Spirit incorporates us into the earthly body of the crucified and risen Lord. So I concluded two years ago. Now, picking up on this twofold affirmation that justification comes by faith which is itself the sovereign work and gift of the Holy Spirit, this morning I want to tell a self-critical tale about a deep conundrum that developed in early Lutheranism, which in my view continues to have the debilitating consequence of disappearing, so to speak, the Holy Spirit. I hasten to clarify from the outset, however, that by disappearance, I do not mean that in reality the Holy Spirit abandoned the Lutheran Church or its tradition. I already confessed that we had ample evidence of that presence of the Spirit 
in the way that Dr. Benny talked about the role of the spirit in the Christian life. My meaning is rather that insofar as the Lutheran Church is and remains the Church of Jesus Christ, surely the Holy Spirit sovereignly calls to faith through the gospel and enlightens with his gifts where and when he wills. As the word is rightly proclaimed and the sacraments administered according to it, what I mean by disappearance is rather that the consciousness of the Holy Spirit's vital work was eclipsed and thus gradually diminished in our understanding to the point of disappearance in the very conceptuality of Lutheran theology. And the resulting practical ignorance of the Spirit's vital and indispensable role has had damaging consequences on Christian life. Word and sacraments may be proclaimed officially in a correct manner. Lip service, even earnest lip service may be paid as such to the Holy Spirit. After all, the Spirit can hardly be avoided in the biblical literature which form the basis of preaching but also in the confessional documents, especially the Augsburg Confession and its apology. Yet I submit that for many Lutherans through the years, the Holy Spirit became a fifth wheel, an idle bystander who had no clear mandate or distinct task until finally Occam's razor, by Occam's razor, the spirit was reduced to a pious gloss on warm and fuzzy feelings in believers. Now, I have nothing against warm and fuzzy feelings in believers. My point with Karl Barth is that theology is not anthropology. The eclipse of the spirit and gradual reduction to being a cipher for a certain class of human feelings was harmful because it both reflected and reinforced a baffling incoherence at the heart of things Lutheran. Going back to the beginning, as I will show you, the conundrum or incoherence I want to expose for examination today is simply this. If God justifies the sinner who comes to faith in the righteousness of Christ for him or herself, how do sinners in bondage to sin from which they cannot free themselves ever come to such faith in the first place? That's the perplexity, the conundrum that I wish to exposit for you this afternoon. Now, how Luther and the early Melanchthon answered this question is well known. Both the bishop and Bob Benny cited it. Believing in the Holy Spirit means despairing of oneself, joyfully confessing, therefore, 
that we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in our Lord Jesus Christ or come to him, but rather, rather, the Holy Spirit has effectively called through the gospel. So Melanchthon wrote accordingly in the Augsburg Confession, but this righteousness is worked in the heart when the Holy Spirit is received through the word. Thus, the gift to receive the gift of Christ's righteousness for oneself, the sinner, is itself gift. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit wherever and whenever God so pleases. The central teaching of the Augsburg Confession and its apology is that such divine and living faith which justifies the one who believes personally is, is that the one who so believes is personally received into mercy on account of Christ. That's from the fourth article of the Augsburg Confession. Friends, the formulation here is very precise. It weaves together the objective, propter Christum, on account of Christ, and the subjective, pro me, for me personally, in the event of justification. Faith is not a meritorious work in itself. That would be merely faith and faith, fideism. Rather, justifying faith believes that Christ, the friend of sinners, lives and his work of solidarity is valid before God, also for me. For Christ is the one who fulfilled the double love commandment, loving his Father by loving us who are not so lovely or lovable, all the way down to making his own, our sin, and its wages death on the cross. As just this historically particular one vindicated and exalted to reign on Easter morn, Jesus Christ comes by the Holy Spirit through the gospel as the righteousness which comes from outside of the self as help to those helplessly unrighteous, and thus as truly good news for such. Consequently, however, in believing this objectively about Christ, justifying faith also now believes something subjectively about its own self, namely, that in the unique and historical particularity of my own failure and shame, I too am reached by Christ and by his gracious presence received gladly into our Father's heaven, Heavenly Father's mercy. Indeed, this promeity from the Latin prome, for me, that's what we theologians call it, this promeity is what distinguishes justifying fiducia, trust, from mere fides historica, mere historical beliefs, which even the devils have. Its affirmation, you see, therefore, is crucial. 
it works critically to preserve justification by faith from being misunderstood as justification by the intellectually meritorious work of believing strange things, unlike all those others who have their doubts. The demons, too, however, believe that justification comes to sinners by faith at which they tremble. But anyone who believes that Christ lived and died for me, therewith dies in Christ to sin and is raised in Christ to faith. Hence, holding together in unity these objective and subjective dimensions of justification by faith, Melanchthon in the Apology argues both that righteousness is imputed or credited to faith on account of Christ's present coming into the midst of believing sinners, and that spirit-bestowed faith, which presently receives just this Christ, regenerates to new life and holiness. And I'm quoting now from the Apology. And because faith receives the forgiveness of sins and reconciles us to God, we are first regarded as righteousness by this faith on account of the Christ before we love and keep the law. That's the objective dimension. Although love necessarily follows. And now here comes the subjective dimension. And this faith is no idle knowledge, nor can it coexist with mortal sin. But it is a work of the Holy Spirit that frees us from death and raises and makes alive terrified minds on account of Christ and, and, and by faith alone, we are justified, that is, out of unrighteous people, we are made righteous and regenerated." End quote. Ergo, faith is the new birth from above. Faith is regeneration, accounting us righteous, and just so making us righteous. Clear enough? The originating Reformation doctrine is quite specifically justification by faith, where faith denotes precisely the humanly impossible belief of the sinner that for Christ's sake she is received into mercy. For human beings, such personal and particular faith is quite impossible. It is inconceivable, yet not with God. Such faith, believing in a gift for one's own self that is not and cannot be deserved, moreover, does not fall off the pages of the Bible as a plain sense reading of the oxymoron or paradox, Christ crucified. 
whose visage in the world is as one who is folly to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. To the one whom Paul calls the natural man, whom we all were, this proclamation of Christ crucified is nonsense, the nonsense of a contradiction. Christ crucified is like saying to the natural man, David slain by Goliath, Joshua put to the edge of the sword by the Canaanites, Victor victimized. It can only sound like nonsense, or worse perhaps, a perverse and repugnant recommendation of one without form or comeliness that we should desire him. Faith in Christ crucified, for me the sinner, can accordingly only be the sovereign calling and gift of the Lord and giver of life, his effective working revelation and gracious gift, whom the Father sent, the Spirit whom Christ called holy. Note well, in that case, as this specific personal work and crucial indispensable contribution by the Holy Spirit, justifying faith is already sanctification and regeneration. Just as Melanchthon spelled out in the Apology as previously cited, this work of the Holy Spirit is indispensable for without it, there is no access of the natural man to Christ and what he has done for us. What could be clearer? But let me belabor the point by fulsomely citing from Luther's preface to the Romans, published in the 1520s, in which he clarifies why it is faith and faith alone in Christ which justifies, since it is the work of the Holy Spirit. I quote, how can anybody prepare himself for good by means of works? If he does no good work except with aversion and constraint in his heart, how can such a servile work please God if it proceeds from an averse and unwilling heart. But to fulfill the law means to do its work eagerly, lovingly, freely, without the constraint of the law. It means to live well and in a manner pleasing to God as though there were no law or punishment in view. So it is the Holy Spirit who puts such eagerness of unconstrained love into the heart, as Paul says in Romans 5. But the Spirit is given only in, with, and through faith in Christ, as Paul says in the introduction to Romans. So too, faith comes only through the Word of God, the gospel that preaches Christ, how he is both Son of God and man, how he died and rose for our sake. That is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. 
Faith it is that brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. The Spirit in turn renders the heart glad and free as the law demands. Then good works proceed from faith itself. That is what Paul means in Romans 3 when after he has thrown out the works of the law, he sounds as though he wants to abolish the law by faith. No, he says, we uphold the law through faith. That is, we fulfill it through faith. Faith is not what human illusion and dream is not. Faith is not that human illusion and dream that some people think it is. Faith is the work of God in us, which changes us and brings us to a new birth and a new will from God. Faith kills the old Adam, makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that one would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Punct. I repeat, what could be clearer? And yet, 50 years later, the formula of Concord, solid direct declaration, Article 3, contradicted the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, denying that justifying faith is the regenerating work of the Spirit maintaining instead that regeneration or renewal is something else that follows sequentially after justification, resulting from justification by faith and not to be confused with it, even as the formula acknowledges the embarrassing fact that the apology explicitly stated, quote, justification is regeneration, end quote. The formulators want to distinguish the personal faith by which an individual believes that his or her sins are remitted on account of Christ and that God is reconciled and gracious on account of Christ then as something different from the new birth by the Spirit from above. I ask, where is this personal justifying faith supposed to come from? If not, as we have heard, from the Spirit who comes upon a sinner to convict her of sin and persuade her concerning righteousness, the righteousness of Christ pro me, for me. The external or alien righteousness of Christ, as it is called, in the sense that this righteousness is Christ's own proper accomplishment in his life of obedience on our behalf, only reaches its target, us, to become our own by faith as a gift truly becomes the possession of the recipient 
It only becomes this by personal faith from the heart. Who else but the Spirit opens the tomb, which is the fallen human heart in the children of Adam, to call forth such newness of life? Well, we have to dig a little bit deeper to get to the bottom of this conundrum. What I just described earlier as the unity of the subjective and objective poles in the event of justification reflects the mutual qualification of two biblical metaphors for the event of justification. Each metaphor is necessary in its own way, but in danger when taken apart from the other and deployed in a one-sided fashion. One metaphor is Christological. Christ comes as the bridegroom of the soul, taking her as his own so that the two become one and possess all things in common. A second metaphor, for lack of a better term, I will call forensic or perhaps better patrological. God the Father comes as the one true judge, not deceived by human appearances, but the one who searches and judges the heart. So two metaphors. Christ comes as bridegroom of the soul. God the Father comes as the true and heavenly judge. The unity of these two metaphors, for Luther, consisted in the background Trinitarian truth that in Christ the Father in love gives his very self in this person of his Son, who thus reveals in turn the innermost heart of the Father. So it is that the Father's just judgment was not only to judge the sin of the world on the cross of his Son, but surpassing that, to vindicate on Easter morn the sons judged for sin, that son, to vindicate that son's love for sinners as also his very own fatherly love for them. Hence, dramatically establishing this new and surpassing act of obedience and righteousness as the uniquely saving righteousness of God, which unlike any other kind of justice or righteousness, does not give us what we deserve, but gives us precisely what we do not deserve, life and salvation. This dramatic unity of a dynamic event of outreaching, self-surpassing divine and creative love which finds the way justly to justify sinners is destroyed when these two metaphors become divorced and with them the objective and subjective poles of justification fall apart into a sequence of discrete actions. Thus, Faithfully for the future of Lutheranism, the formula drew a picture 
in which the forensic metaphor of the law court subordinated the nuptial metaphor of Christ's joy, of Luther's Christological joyful exchange. The formula depicted God in heaven as in the office of the judge, who counterfactually pronounces the verdict not guilty on the sinner who has made application to substitute Christ's righteousness for his own failure at righteousness. Then and only then, the formula taught, does that heavenly judge send the spirit to renew this sinner whose credit has first been restored by making the substitution of Christ's merit for his own demerit. In the joyful exchange, by contrast, the risen Christ presents himself saying as a groom to a bride, give me your sins and take my righteousness. With God, the heavenly judge pronouncing victoriously as a loving father over these nuptials, this one is my beloved son. Wrapped together with him, you too have become my beloved child, adopted into the family of God. The obedience of faith to this gracious pronouncement and promise of course, as I've said from the beginning, can only be the work of the same spirit of the risen Christ sent by the heavenly Father, affecting in this way spiritual death to sin, which is sacrificed, given away to Christ the Lamb, who would bear it away, and in turn a resurrection to faith, which gladly receives the gift of Christ's righteousness in the place that sin had occupied. Now these two metaphors work together to condition each other. After all, the marriage analogy breaks down because Christ and the believer are not equals as are a husband and a wife. The new covenant is not a contract between equals establishing a legal quid pro quo of fair and reciprocal exchanges. Therefore, the law court metaphor protects the new nuptial imagery from reducing the good news of God's unilateral act of sovereign grace in Christ down to some kind of commercial exchange between equals say in a particularly debased, but unfortunately all too common occurrence in the Lutheran tradition to the debased form of saying, I do God the favor of believing in a lot of things like God, and in exchange, God does me the favor of forgiving my sins. In Christ, however, we are dealing with the heavenly, heavenly Father, the holy God, creator, Lord, and judge. By the same token, the nuptial imagery protects the law court metaphor from the trenchant objection that in Christ, God tells a white lie about the sinner in the pronouncement not guilty, that justification 
forensic justification amounts to a legal fiction. Rather, Christ's fulfillment of the law gives the good reason why this pronouncement, this verdict over the penitent and believing sinner can be so. What other groom could give saving righteousness to his bride other than the one whose righteousness suffices before the just and heavenly Father? When, however, the law court metaphor eclipses the joyful exchange, what kind of picture do we get in its place? We get the picture of a terrorized sinner drowning in sin and dreading eternal death who naturally enough latches on to a life preserver, which is said to be in this case the memory that once upon a time Christ died for our sins. Now notice, in that case, the actual motive in coming to faith in Christ crucified, never mind how you ever perceive Christ crucified as your life preserver, but the actual motive in coming to faith in Christ amounts only to the entirely natural fear of hell or the entirely natural hope of a heavenly reward. And so the untransformed, self-seeking sinner coerced by the law lives on in such distorted piety. Even worse, I would say, with the false security of having procured an eternal life insurance policy signed and sealed by the Son of God. In the process of correcting Luther and the early Melanchthon, this purely forensic doctrine of justification put forward by the formula profoundly obscured the theological reason why faith alone in Christ alone justifies the sinner, because it nullified the vital and indispensable role of the Spirit in sovereignly electing and effectively calling to faith in the righteousness of Christ in the process, it begs the question of how the blind and hardened sinner, think of Peter who denied or Paul who persecuted, could ever come to such a faith. And in the course of time, this begging of a vital question opened up a little space for the meritorious contribution of human will in deciding for the good deal and accepting the free pass. What separates believers from unbelievers then is not the Holy Spirit who blows as he will, but human beings who decide in terror of eternal death to take a good deal while it's available and the rest can just go to hell. Justification by faith was suddenly, subtly transformed in this way into, the ju into justification by the good luck of a good deal. And this had ecumenical costs as well. So transformed 
it permitted a polemical caricature generating a pan-Protestant oversimplification. Catholics teach justification by works on account of religious experience and effort. Not such a good deal. But Protestants teach free justification by grace on account of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. A really good deal. The word grace is affirmed as all-sufficient and universally applicable, although incoherently it is limited by the condition that one, unlike others, like Catholics, believes this Orthodox Protestant doctrine of justification. The polemical caricature of Catholicism, purchased by a Lutheran self-misunderstanding, erected an intellectual works righteousness as the very bulwark of citadel Protestantism. In the process, it deliberately and unjustly disregarded the explicit teaching of the first three chapters of the Council of Trent on justification, which vigorously affirmed justification by grace. In reality, justification by grace was never in dispute between the early Lutheran confessors and the papal party which opposed them. The question originally was only whether grace took hold of the human person by spirit-brought faith in Christ alone, that was the Lutheran position, or whether in human belief formed and animated by charity, that was the Catholic position. The formula of Concord sought to resolve the dangerous contentions within early Lutheranism. It thus inaugurated the theology of Lutheran orthodoxy. In doing so, however, its consolidation of early Lutheranism came at the ecumenical cost of anathematizing not only the Church of Rome, but also Reformed Protestantism that crystallized around the legacies of Zwingli and Calvin. Now, of course, neither of these con condemnations were without precedence in Luther. His attack on the papal antichrist is exceedingly well known and was included in the Lutheran confessional writings in his small-caled articles. But Luther already had disputed Christologically with Zwingli. By 1580, the Christological dispute initiated in that controversy over the Lord's Supper had enlarged to encompass the difficult but also decisive doctrine of divine election or predestination. And this frightening topic, too, is part of the story how the Holy Spirit disappeared in Lutheranism. Since, as we have already seen for Luther in the early Melanchthon, you cannot, you just cannot have Christ without the sovereign spirit, nor can you have the spirit without the Lord Christ. In the actual analysis of the way Luther and the early Melanchthon talk, election is the spirit's work in time. The spirit who blows where he will the spirit who calls to faith through the gospel. 
That's the connection here that we need to see. Sovereign election to faith by the effective calling of the Holy Spirit in history is not then, is not then, the necessary outworking of a primal and absolute decree of the first cause, faithfully determining all subsequent events, including the salvation and damnation of people. Biblically, beginning with Pentecost, effective calling to faith through the gospel appears instead as the Spirit's temporal initiative in those innovations requisite to the gospel's mission to the nations. For early Lutheranism, the location of the doctrine of election is not in a predetermined, absolute, and eternal decree before time, but in the temporal unleashing of the Holy Spirit upon the earth. And that meant a liberating implication for them. We are not at the mercy of an absolute and inscrutable double decree of some to salvation and others to damnation. Rather, we are and ever remain at the mercy of the Spirit, who unleashed upon the earth blows where he will, granting faith, as Augsburg Confession, Article 5 states, where and when it pleases God. So you see, it's still a doctrine of election, the sovereign election of God, but the location is not in an absolute decree of the one before time and space, but in the procession of the Holy Spirit into history. So how are we to connect these two, the vital and indeed indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in time and creator God's sovereign determination of all creatures? There are several questions here, and we can't take them all up all. One question is whether Christ is merely God's second thought. That is an ex post facto reaction to unanticipated human sin. Gee, Adam sinned. Now what am I going to do? If we reject that reaction as unworthy of God, the creator of all that is not God, we refine the question. Is Christ subordinate as an instrument of a prior and absolute decree of God, which made apart from Christ, determines in eternity the fate of all subsequent temporal things, thus also the salvation of some chosen few and the, from the otherwise mass destined for damn, predestined for damnation? So the teaching of the Reformed appeared to the early Lutherans. Not only did the Reformed limit what for the Lutherans was the universal scope of Christ's atoning work to a select number of predetermined elect, so-called limited atonement. In the process, they also seemed to the early Lutherans to subordinate the work and person of Christ to God. Now notice, to God, not taken essentially as the father of this son, but as the absolute in relation to its 
subordinate instruments. You see, the Lutherans detected that the very being of God was not being conceived in the Reformed doctrine of double predestination, was not being conceived according to the relational ontology of the doctrine of the Trinity. as the father of this beloved son on whom he breathes his spirit. But rather, they were construing God absolutely as sheer, arbitrary, and omnipotent will. And this is a conception that tended towards a new iteration of the Arian heresy and an untrinitarian Unitarianism. These were both doctrinal deviations which actually much troubled early Calvinism. The early Orthodox Lutheran rejection of the Reformed doctrine of double predestination was articulated in the formula's final article number 11. Article 11 affirmed the universal atonement of Christ. However, that seemed to imply universal salvation an inference which the Reformed quickly made against the Lutherans and which the early Lutherans quickly repudiated in their own defense. But in rejecting the implication of universal salvation, the Lutherans, as it seems in hindsight, were dri driven to desperation. If not a necessitarian double decree, must there not be some reason in human beings for their damnation in spite of the universality of Christ's atonement? In the course of time, then, this rejection of the implication of universal atonement for universal salvation tended to reintroduce the human will as a small but crucial causative factor separating the sheep from the goats. Already the later Melanchthon indicated that the willingness to accept Christ as savior differentiated the elect from the reprobate. And so, Semi-Pelagianism, which had provoked Luther's initial attack on the optimistic anthropology of late medieval scholastic theology, returned through the back door into fortress Lutheranism. This rejection of double predestination also came at the cost of a certain incoherence with a notorious teaching of Luther, well known from the treatise on bound choice. In the treatise against Erasmus, Luther toyed with the notion of double predestination as something suggested by the hiddenness of God that remains, according to Luther, as a kind of dark penumbra, penumbra backgrounding the light of grace something only to dissipate at last in the fulsome light of glory. It is interesting to observe how Luther pinpointed, 
pinpointed the darkness attending even the revealed God of grace. Just as for the reform, for Luther, God apparently elects some to faith but passes over other. The spirit blows where he will. But this perception is qualified by Luther as one made according to the human experience of Christians in the present time when we see but through a glass darkly. Decisively, it remains to be seen what will become of others to whom apparently faith has not presently been granted. Remember, God the heavenly judge is not the one deceived by human appearances, but searches and judges the heart. So judgment is reserved, true judgment is reserved to God alone. So Luther says, in the meantime, we believe in the merciful righteousness of God revealed in Christ, and that is what we hope for. Of course, a great ambiguity remains here where Luther leave, leaves it. Does Luther imply that believers will rejoice to see in glory the now manifest justice of the damnation of those to whom faith was withheld? Or does Luther hint that believers will be surprised, maybe not pleasantly, at how many of the apparently faithless will accompany them to glory? Without expressly saying so, in his provocative speculation about the dark God hidden in majesty, as opposed to the bright shining God revealed in manger and cross, Luther toyed, at least verbally, with the Arian heresy. That is, the speculation about an absolute God not bound to his word, as a father is bound to his son. Upon critical reflection, Luther's experimentation with this heretical Arian thought served to make manifest what is the cause of an unbaptized theism over against the Christian faith in the almighty father who is eternally father of his own son the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, whose Holy Spirit unleashed on the earth gives faith where and when he pleases. For in that case, the Trinitarian case, the scope and power of the atoning work of Christ is understood as fully equal to the infinitely creative work of the Almighty Father. While believers to whom faith has been granted as a gift, are humbled as they are reminded that in this life they see no better reason in themselves for the election than in those whom the Spirit apparently has passed over. And thus, as believers, they see that they remain at the mercy of the Spirit. As you believe, so you have, Luther was wont to say. As the objectivity of faith is given in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is accessed by the personal work of the Holy Spirit 
who makes a theological subject out of the natural man by the gratuitous grant of faith constituting a new human person. If this is the case, it follows that if and when faith relapses from precious grace back into the mere light of nature, it cannot help but speculate about a hidden God, precisely the one not bound by his word. Years after this polemic with Erasmus, according to Robert Cole, Luther, in fact, expressed regret over this speculative line of thought and his own fatalistic rhetoric in the treatise about the necessary foreknowledge of God. In later years, he insisted that Jesus Christ names God in God's absolute power as the Father of all mercies and the God of all consolation. Hidden in the voluminous Genesis lectures, this retraction by Luther was little known. Consequently, Reformed theologians could wave Luther's text on bound choice in the face of latter-day self-proclaimed Orthodox Lutherans and maintain that they were better followers of Luther than they. The moral of the story, however, is that affirming the vital and indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in effective election to faith in Jesus Christ puts believers in and keeps believers at the mercy of the Spirit. I've delayed until now as we draw to a conclusion the intervening reason why the formulators neglected the early Lutheran doctrine of justification, excuse me, negated the early Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith, where faith is the Spirit's sovereign work in us of receiving Christ crucified for us. It came from a dispute stemming from the teaching of another disciple of Luther, Andreas Osiander. Now, Osiander drew upon some of Luther's own rhetoric about how the divine righteousness of the incarnate Son of God swallows up sin, analogized to being a mere drop being dissolved into an infinite ocean. Taking this metaphor in a one-sided way, Osiander began to teach that justification occurred by the oceanic infusion of divine righteousness into the soul, swallowing up and dissolving away its sinfulness. The liquid metaphor of infusion could also appeal to Augustine's interpretation of his favorite verse in connection with justification in Romans 5.5 about God's love being poured like a liquid into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that faith is vitalized and informed by God's own charity. Osiander's retrieval of the infusion metaphor from the patristic and medieval heritage seemed especially wrong-headed to the Melanchthon and his followers. 
because it seemed to undermine the objectivity of justification as the work of Christ external to the believer's self. They feared the implication that in place of faith's continuous looking outside of itself to Christ, infusion would invite the believer to look within to her own felt experience of God's love for assurance of her status as a beloved child of God. So infusion was too close for comfort to rival papist schemes in which the sacraments operated mechanically to dispense divine grace like a medical potion, injecting divine charity into sinful souls progressively to chasten and purify them, even if it required a lengthy purgatory to pull it off. They detected in Osiander a Christological view according to which abstract incarnation as such, the sheer contact between intrinsic divine heavenly righteousness and accidental human historical sinfulness constituted the saving act of God in Christ. Now this scheme seemed to them to make Christ's incarnate life of obedience nugatory, a mere outward manifestation of an inner and prior state of perfect being. Further implications were deleterious. A solely incarnational interpretation of salvation could in principle employ any of the three divine persons for the job of incarnation. And equally, it could employ any finite creature for its materialization. Why Jesus? Why Jesus as the Christ? Why a Christ crucified? All such questions become incidental. All that matters is that you've got an incarnation connecting essential divine righteousness with accidental human sinfulness. Thus, the saving righteousness of God was interpreted as an intrinsic divine property rather than as the accomplishment of the Son whose particular life of obedience on our behalf matters crucially. So Osiander's Christology overlooked the cross and especially the Gethsemane prayer of the incarnate Son's surrender to his Father's uncanny will on which our salvation truly depends. Penitent sinners are rather sought and found by the saving righteousness of the particular Christ who is Jesus, son of his Abba Father, as their spirit proclaims this very event of his coming in the flesh as good news to those in bondage from sin from which they cannot free themselves. This is an event in time of saving righteousness. It is not something naturally possessed by virtue of a divine nature alone, but rather is something accomplished by this divine person's incarnate life and human obedience, death, and resurrection. And if saving righteousness on behalf of the ungodly is the personal work of the one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and as such properly belongs to him alone as the one who has done it, 
It is and ever remains alien to the believer to whom it is attributed as a gift through proclamation, not infused by means of a ritual working mechanically. Thus far, the formula of Concord's correction of Osiander. Yet this correction of Osiander also came at a cost, as we have heard. The cost of explicitly repudiating the allegedly imprecise language of the Augsburg Confession and its apology from 50 years prior. As we have heard, these seminal texts following Luther's own usage, just as Osiander had, regularly characterized justifying faith as spirit-given new birth from above as regeneration. Even though, of course, Luther, unlike Osiander, is not thinking by this of a medicine-like infusion of charity into the soul. He is thinking instead of a new spirit-bestowed identity conforming us to the cross and resurrection of Christ. How else could they maintain the grace alone and faith alone except by maintaining that the spirit-wrought faith comes upon one as a gift, even against one's previously prevailing will, as happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. Yet in place of this, the formulators established for posterity a psychologically implausible but all the same polemically necessary order of salvation to nip Osiander's doctrine of infusion in the bud. Justification first, sanctification thereafter, at least for those into that kind of thing. Here, too, the cost proved painful in the long run. The scheme, forensic justification first, effective sanctification second, begged the question of how the unregenerate sinner comes to faith in the merciful righteousness of Christ. And notice how in this scheme the Holy Spirit disappears from the action, except perhaps as a gloss on the purely human motive in action, essentially that of a terrified and drowning sailor's entirely natural reach for a perceived life preserver. As I've said, without bothering to reflect on how you ever perceive Christ crucified as a life preserver. For the early Melanchthon and Luther, however, this question could not be begged how anyone could ever grasp Christ crucified as saving righteousness from God. For them, the scandal of the cross could not be overcome or rather overlooked this way. Christ crucified does not look like any kind of savior to the natural man. It rather looks as if he himself needs to be saved. How is it ever possible to see in him the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world? Mine too. Only the personal transformation to faith, affected by the free and sovereign calling of the Holy Spirit through the gospel word 
of the resurrection which vindicated that crucified one effectively generates holy faith in the Lamb of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul puts it. Of course, in that case, if coming to faith is by the spirit-effective coming of the gospel from outside of the self to the existing self in order to transform that self into a new creation. Faith is itself divine and holy. In other words, justifying faith is already sanctification, and the formula's sequential scheme, justification first, sanctification second, collapses. But to fend off the threat posed by Osiander's doctrine, Orthodox Lutheranism could not face up to this conundrum. In the course of time, insistence upon the psychologizing order of, sal of a salvation scheme had to eclipse the sovereign and initial initiating role of the Holy Spirit and open up in its place that little space uh, for the causal factor of free human will. And it's actually decisive action in the sinner's decision. It was just this little act of human willpower, in turn, which explained the division between the sheep and the goats. And so a kind of evangelical semi-Pelagianism emerged within Lutheran orthodoxy when it broke down of its own internal contradictions. In turn, separated from justification by faith, sanctification became the believer's endeavor to prove himself worthy of grace in a new kind of legalism. So let me say this, sensing this problem, my beloved brothers and sisters who are disciples of the late Gerhard Ferdy were not wrong in this respect to don t-shirts proclaiming weak on sanctification and proud of it. <laughs> but we should press further to see that as justification by faith is already Holy Spirit sanctification, Sanctification consists in learning daily to live by faith. The just will live by their faith, says Paul, quoting Habakkuk at the beginning of Romans. Living by faith does not take us out of the world, but pushes us more deeply into it. Living by faith does not free us from the burdens of this life, but enables us to bear one another, bear one another's burdens. Living by faith teaches us the sufficiency of God's grace in all things just because in all things we remain daily at the mercy of the Spirit. Living by faith disallows illusions about one's own moral superiority to others and causes us to see our deepest solidarity with the sinners of the world, to whom, in fact, we remain organically bound. Living by faith disciples us to follow Jesus, 
taking up our own crosses. Living by faith in the power of the Spirit, we are active in love. And in precisely this way and only this way, sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies, though it certainly still afflicts us and troubles us. Such a view of sanctification is quite different from the don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance hostility to physical life so often put out under the name of sanctification. Such a view of sanctification rather daily instructs us that henceforth and forever we belong body and soul to the body of Christ which is the temple of the Spirit. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Thank you.